You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll get a reaction from the Coalition on Homelessness to city data showing that the vast majority of people who went through the city's shelter system last year ended up back on the streets. Why are we serving homelessness through housed people? Why aren't we serving homeless people? If our whole orientation switches away from we want to decrease the number of tents to we want to help homeless people move into housing and get off the streets completely, that's going to satisfy all the neighbors who are complaining in a real way rather than a than what I would say is kind of a fake effort that we have been undertaking the last couple years. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. San Francisco officials are planning to shift their approach to homelessness after reviewing data that show that the current strategy, a complaint-driven system, isn't actually getting people off the streets. The data show that in 2019, 95% of people who went through a shelter or navigation center returned to the street after their stay. That's up from 58% the year before. At a recent meeting of the local homeless coordinating board, Jeff Kaczynski, director of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, said that beginning mid-March, the Healthy Streets Operations Center, colloquially known as HSUC, would stop relying on complaint calls to the city's 311 hotline. Instead, they'll move to an approach that combines multiple sources of data to identify and prioritize places with large encampments or high concentrations of people living unsheltered. You know, we looked at what we did in 2018 and we looked at what we did in 2019 and we saw really clearly what we're doing right now doesn't work. You know, tents are physical objects, but the solution to not having them is to solve each person's problem uh, one at a time. And sometimes that can take 10 minutes and sometimes that can take a really, really long time, depending on that person. Uh, I personally have you know, done outreach work and have been doing this work for a while. I've never met anybody who didn't have a good reason uh, for not accepting assistance. There, there's always a good reason, and it's usually because the system in some way is uh, not meeting that person's needs. And there's a way to make that work for, we've already proven, at least two-thirds of the people or close to two-thirds of the people, and that's by taking your time and um, respecting that person's agency um, and that's what we know works, and that's what we're, we're moving back to. Um, but this is a little bit, and I think it's going to take time, because Dell, as you have indicated, I think we've lost, um, we've lost some trust and credibility amongst people on the streets, right? And I think it's important, like, we just say that. It's, there's no reason to, like, no one was trying to do that. No one was trying to hurt anybody. We tried something. It didn't work. It eroded trust on the streets. All the data shows that. And now we're standing up and saying, okay, been there, done that, now we're going to go back to what we know works. He also said that the department would be announcing a point person for HSOC, something the coordinating board had been asking about. Well, on March 5th, the San Francisco Examiner revealed that Kaczynski himself would be stepping down from his position as the head of HSH to become that very manager. Emily Cohen, the mayor's policy advisor for homelessness, pointed out that the HSOC initiative alone isn't designed to solve the root causes of homelessness. HSOC is not necessarily designed to get at the root challenges, which I think has been alluded to already by many of the public commenters, but is really designed to get at the conditions on the street. We have lots of work that we're doing on the underlying causes of many of the challenges, but the initiative here that we're talking about here today is focused on street conditions. You can read our coverage of this story by reporter Brian Howey at sfpublicpress.org. 
For another perspective on this news, we spoke with Jennifer Friedenbach, executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness, an independent nonprofit that organizes homeless people and frontline service providers. Note that this interview was taped prior to the revelation that Kaczynski himself would be filling the role of HSOC manager. Here's what Jennifer and I talked about. Brian's story highlighted city data showing that in 2019, 95% of unhoused people who went through shelter or navigation centers returned to the street. And that's up from 58% the year before. 95% is nearly everyone. What does that figure say to you about what's happening at the shelters and navigation centers? Well, it says a lot. So <laughs> so starting with, um, I think, a kind of building a broader context around HSOC and kind of understanding. So that's the Healthy Street Operations Center, which is a multi-department collaboration to address homelessness, right? Yeah, it's centered uh, by the police. I mean, the police kind of you know, got this whole ball rolling. It was on the heels of several things that happened. So we had huge numbers of people that, as the rents were rising, started to use tents. And tents are cheap. You know, you can get them for like 25 bucks. They're really cheap. And they add a modicum of privacy, a little bit of shelter from the elements. You know, we just started seeing a lot of tents popping up. And then we had the Super Bowl three years ago, and it was taking place in San Francisco, and the police started pushing everyone from all the central thoroughfares into San Francisco um, over to Division Street. And we ended up with like 300 people in tents over there. And then the city came and did a massive sweep and threw away everybody's property and all the photos from that time, you know, throwing walkers getting crushed, et cetera. So then um, we ended up pushing everybody out of there. And all of a sudden the complaints to the city skyrocketed. Because all those surrounding neighborhoods suddenly had folks that were living under freeways and in these other places that were kind of more out of the way mm-hmm. and were forced in a situation uh, where, you know, they were in more residential areas. And so basically the city started in 2018 to um, have what they called an encampment resolution team. And what they did is they went around and they spent weeks working with people and they had a very senior clinical person by the name of Jason Albertson, who is very experienced on this, has years of experience. He would work with the folks in the encampment and then accumulate beds in navigation centers and and different places like that, and then move people in in housing and then move people in. So that was relatively successful. But while that was happening, the city was continuing to have like a police and DPW response where they were pushing people around and confiscating their property. And they decided to just basically consolidate everything into this Healthy Streets Operations Center where every complaint coming from the city um, went through there. They stopped doing the encampment resolutions and basically started sending out cops and DPW workers. The result is that it was a massive failure. And basically what they're doing, it's kind of a no-dub, but um, they're moving people from block to block um, instead of moving people off the streets and into housing. So that's where that 95% going back to the streets situation grew out of. It's very deliberate policy decisions to basically, and this is the essence, to instead of respond to the need of the homeless person, respond to the person who's housed that's complaining. It's called a complaint-driven system. So everything's about the complaints. And so um, that is a really awkward way to manage limited homeless resources. Well, so there is actually a statistic about how often people are offered services when they encounter police officers. 
Just 2% of encounters homeless people had with police resulted in connections to services. 2%. And for encounters with the homeless outreach team, also known as the hot team, which is not police, the rate was just 17%. Sounds like probably no, but do those figures surprise you at all? You know, some of this stuff is, first of all, what do the police have to offer? Mm -hmm. So historically, nothing. So the police got kind of frustrated of course, we shouldn't even be sending police out to deal with homelessness. It's not a criminal activity. So part of HSOC, what they did is they started they started setting aside beds for police officers in the navigation centers. So for police officers to offer. To, to offer, yeah. And, mm-hmm. of course, what that does is displace a whole bunch of other people who are in really bad shape that, from an acuity perspective, have physical health or behavioral health or other situations where they really should be prioritized to get that very expensive hundred and something dollar a night bed that's, you know, very intensive services. And the police are going out and offering it. And, you know, I think from homeless people's perspective, what we hear from all the time is, is it's just like, you know, this cop is telling me to go somewhere and I'm like, screw you. And I don't want to displace somebody else that's desperate. Um, The 17% for the hot team offering is also a really low percentage. And I think there's a couple of things happening there. I think that the hot team has been so used by the city instead of doing their job that they signed up to do, which is to identify people who are in really bad shape um, and try to get them services. You know, hot team is not supposed to be just for general homeless people. It's supposed to be for people who have medical issues or other other acuities and that they're going to be prioritized and that they need a little extra assistance um, to get some help. And instead, they're being pulled to all these different complaints and responding to things and getting pulled away. You know, they'll have people teed up to get into services and then suddenly the city will decide some other population is a priority. Um, so someone who was first on the list is now off the list. And I mean, there's just a lot of game playing and that erodes the trust. It also erodes the trust when the hot team is present with police officers all the time. And the other piece of it is the hot team doesn't really have much to offer. And so the way that the system is working right now is that in order to get housing, which is what people want, the hot team has some shelter beds. But again, if they're prioritizing people that are high acuity and congregate shelter is probably not the appropriate placement um, the NAV Center is slightly better, but you still have a lot of folks out there with severe psychiatric disabilities that prevent them from living in congregate settings. What they do have to offer is often inappropriate for the people that they're set up to serve. So what 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 really needs to happen is housing, and um, there's so little of that to offer. So that's where you get kind of the 17%. It's like you they come up to a person, you know, what do you need? I need housing. I don't have housing, but I can give you a bed for um, for a couple nights in this shelter with 300 other people. That's not going to work for me. And then that that ends up bringing those percentages down. To your mind, what's the relationship between having a complaint-driven system, which the city is now promising to move away from, and ending up with these kinds of numbers and these kinds of interactions where there isn't much service to offer? And I think it's important to remember that a complaint-driven system is incredibly expensive. So you have all the costs of basically advertising to the people of San Francisco, and they actually have an app that you can track. So it's like, homeless person, I'm going to reach out, I'm going to go through emergency, Department of Emergency Management, which is also trying to bring down their response time on, you know, on 911 calls and other, you know, real 
things that are happening. Just to be clear, we're bringing in the Department of Emergency Management because HSOC is under the Department of Emergency Management. Is that right? Yeah, they are recently put under them instead of the police department. Uh Yeah. You have then the resources of the primarily who's being dispatched is police. So that's incredibly expensive. And again, you have police coming back saying, well, you know, we need to spend all this money on overtime. We can't do... um, foot patrols because it's not within our budget. We can't do X, Y, and Z. Well, why? Well, they're responding to thousands and thousands of homeless complaints. And for the most part, when they get there, the homeless person is already gone. So you're spending all that money sending the person there. The person's already gone. If the person is there, what is the police officer going to have to offer? I mean, you know, it's, they're not a, they're not a clinician. They don't have, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, what, what, what are we doing here? And so the police don't want to be doing that either. So you are making a lot of the same points that Jeff Kaczynski, the director of the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, has made um, at at a hearing where this data came to light. Do you agree that moving away from a complaint-driven system is going to help address the issue of how many people get services and how many people exit homelessness through city programs? The, The number of people who get out of homelessness is directly related to how many housing units we have. So are they going to cut the police department budget and fund housing? Then yes. Are they going to keep the police budget the same and just better utilize the police resources? That's good for something, but that doesn't necessarily increase the number of people moving off the streets. Um, It does just better utilize the resources that we have. So if we want to make sure that our NAV centers are preserved for the people who most need them, et cetera, um, then then we have a little bit more of a common sense system. if we're trying to be more successful at identifying the people who have the highest acuities out on the streets, the most severe mental health issues, the most severe drug addictions, the most severe physical health, the ones that are at the risk of dying, that we need to get them inside as quickly as possible, um, then moving away from a complaint-driven system is going to allow us to really target our resources in a much more thoughtful way. That will definitely save lives. Will it decrease the overall numbers? No, that's not going to change anything. Probably will make a difference on visible homelessness, though. So, you know, those are the folks that tend to be the most visible that that, that people notice. And that, that, that would, you know, so you're basically talking about a, a better use of um, resources. We'll get back to this conversation with Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition on Homelessness in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's hear more from Jennifer Friedenbach about data that recently came out showing that a complaint-based response to homelessness has not been successful in getting people housed. 
So the city's going to start phasing out the complaint-driven approach in March, and in favor, uh, instead, they'll do what Jeff Kaczynski called a slow-roll approach. So instead of responding to each complaint, they'll use a zone model, which uses 311 data and outreach worker input and other metrics to prioritize neighborhoods and areas that have high concentrations of homeless encampments. What are your experiences, and what have you heard from unhoused people about that approach? You know, you can do some interesting stuff with the zone. And I, I want to I go back quite a few years. We had one encampment resolution before we called it an encampment resolution um, that was at King Street behind the um, Caltrans station. And there was a large number of people living there that had been removed several times, and they just cut the fence and went back in. It was a pretty vibrant community, but it also had a lot of people with really um, severe methamphetamine addictions and some pretty big barriers to getting off the streets. And when we did that right, which was working with the folks in the community and figuring out what their needs were, um, we ended up being able to successfully move that entire encampment into housing. Nobody, you know, refused services or anything like that. And basically what, what happened was, and it was under then homeless R. Bevan Dufty, they brought these big containers where people could put their property because property was a big a big problem and folks had accumulated and they have nothing, so they're holding on to what they have desperately. They moved everybody together as a group because it was a community who of people who relied on each other. And they moved them in temporarily into a shelter and then from there um, moved them into housing. And they ended up being able to get blocks of rooms and SROs and rent them. And then the folks got to self-select who were the closest people in their community. One of our writers of our newspaper, The Street Sheet, was one of the members of that encampment. And he wrote, um, you know, as as he was going, really documented that that effort there. And he got diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer at the age of 29, I believe he was, where it was a cancer in his eye that moved to his brain and, and killed him. And he was placed in housing with his best friend, who was his caregiver. And um, he, they weren't in the same room, but they were next to each other. And he had the support of his community through the um, final transition. And so I just think like that, that kind of thoughtfulness around allowing people to kind of think about what works for them really pays off in massive results. So if we approach the zone thing with that kind of embracing of self-determination and dignity and respect that people deserve, it can be very, very successful. So the city is actually going to um, appoint somebody to manage or head up this Healthy Streets Operations Center, what, what we're calling HSOC. Because it's this multi-department effort and it's been around for a while, it, it hasn't had you know one spokesperson or one manager. And there's also going to be a community engagement group to help bridge the gap between HSOC and the community. And that group is going to include a representative from a variety of organizations, including the Coalition on Homelessness. What do you hope your representative might be able to achieve as as a part of this group? I mean, I guess it's too much to hope to just dismantle the whole thing. I mean, I, I think that <laughs> the endeavor has been a complete and total waste of resources. So I'm not even sure why we wouldn't deconstruct and reconstruct something new. But I'm hoping that within that process that that would be, in an essence, what we do and, and, and shift over. I mean, one of the things that we would want to... We would want to be there is make sure that we're actually leading with services. We would want to move away from, you know, having a an app where housed people are tracking, you know, their complaints about homeless people. Instead, have an app that homeless people can reach out for help. Why, why are we serving 
homelessness through housed people. Why aren't we serving homeless people? And that and moving them off into housing. And so if our whole orientation switches to away from we want to decrease the number of tents to we want to help homeless people move into housing and get off the streets completely, that's going to satisfy all the neighbors who are complaining in a real way rather than a than what I would say is kind of a fake effort that we're that we're that we have been undertaking the last couple of years. Well, Jeff Kaczynski told Brian Howie, the reporter on this story, that he'd he'd support a complaint-based approach if it worked, but it doesn't. And he also said he doesn't want to be painted as not caring about housed people and their concerns. Do you think the city is going to face blowback for trying to move away from the 311 and complaint-based approach? Um, I think that in the—they may, um, but I think that in the end— uh, my experience is San Franciscans want to do something that works. And a lot of the people who are calling and complaining are complaining. They're not necessarily complaining. They're actually reaching out because they're trying to get some help for one of their unhoused neighbors. And it's being treated like it's a complaint. You also said that it would be better to lead, to take a service-led approach, to lead with services. Well, we've also talked a little bit today about how there just isn't that much availability of, say, permanent supportive housing, or even that shelters sometimes are not the best answer for somebody, or they don't want to go because it's not a situation that would work for them. And we also have a shelter wait list that frequently rises to, like, a thousand people being on it. How can we lead with services if there is a dearth? Yeah, it's a really good question um, because we really have to balance it, like create an alternative to a police response that costs, you know, however many millions of dollars that wasn't leading to um, some kind of outcome for people where they're able to move off the streets. And so we really need to differentiate, like, what things do we need to respond to? And so, for example, if there's someone who is in acute psychiatric crises, um, we respond. We respond with medical. You know, we have a mobile crisis team that's very underfunded and is unable to respond to many. But when they are, um, they have access to be able to replace people's medications. Um, they can they can also do assessments in terms of whether someone needs to be hospitalized or not. And whatever expansion we do in terms of the formation of an alternative police response, we need to look at first what resources we have, how we can use them more efficiently. Um, what calls we want to drop and not respond to, and then kind of move um, move down to what the gap is, um, and then balance that with an expansion of exits off the street. The city has just, or I think it's just approved possibly two, I know they approved one, new navigation centers or leases for new navigation centers. One is a transitional aged youth um, navigation center, and the other one I think is like a 200-bed general services navigation center. Well, yeah, or they might split it up, like have a trans section or, you know, different different sections. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, will that help in terms of the city's ability to offer services to people? I think our shelter system's too small, so we need to expand it a bit. I would not, never advocate expanding it too, too much because in the end, if we're, if we have, you know, 10 bucks on the table and we're trying to figure out where to put that 10 bucks, you know, we want to divvy it up the right way and we want to make sure that all of our resources aren't getting sucked into emergency shelter because eventually they'll full, they'll be full. And if people don't have a way to move out of them, um, we're going to be permanently housing people in shelter, which is in essence what you do in New York City where you have a right to shelter, and that's not okay. People are still homeless. Their health outcomes are poor. 
um, we want to have as a system where we have a lot of exits into permanent housing. Um, and in the meantime, we have some emergency shelter that people can sleep at that we can then at least make sure that they can get good night's rest because that whole, and that they have access to bathrooms and showers, et cetera. Um, and that their stay there is very short and that they're able to move into permanent housing really quickly. So it really should just be kind of a launching pad into something else and sort of an interim. It's definitely not the be all end all. And what are you hearing from people who have been through the navigation centers, what their experiences have been like, generally speaking? I think people, for the most part, really love the nav centers. I think there's, um, you know, there's a, a difference. I mean, some of them um, uh, have had, you know, a variety of different complaints um, around um, cleanliness or, you know, other issues like that. Um, but I think, for the most part, people really... Um, really want to be able to get access to a nav center. Now, one caveat, though, is you have a lot of folks that have already stayed at the nav centers that have been then exited back onto the streets. And for those folks, I think after a while, they really are not as interested in going back into a nav center. And the reason is, is that there's there's something about having the rug pulled from under you that is so traumatizing. So people are trying to mentally adjust to being homeless and it takes a bit and it's very um, stressful and chaotic. And then they go into the nav center and they finally get to be able to rest and get some sleep. And then suddenly the rugs pulled right back from under them and they're back on the streets. And it's just like, I can't go through that again. That was awful. And, um, and so we hear that a lot. So while people are cycling through shelters and navigation centers, the number of people living in their tents or in their vehicles has also been steadily growing, according to city data, uh, which shows a 31% increase in tents over January 2019. That's the highest tally since the city started counting tents in mid-2018. And the number of lived-in vehicles was also at its highest yet, 814 people counted, which represents a 41% increase since the city's first count of vehicle dwellers in April of 2019. Is there a connection between the high rates of people returning to the streets after shelter stays and um, you know these numbers that we're seeing growing? And as a secondary part to that, what are you hearing from people about why they're ending up on uh, in a tent or in a car? Because clearly there's an increase. Yeah. So, you know, those numbers really play more than anything else into the larger structural problems that we're having. And, you know, of course, up and down the West Coast, very similar situations with rapidly rising rents, um, a lot of real estate speculation, um, a lot of targeting of um, communities of color for um, for that, and therefore a lot of folks getting put out. Um, we have in, I mean, I think you know, in the vehicularly housed is, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 skyrocketing, and so, you know, um, for us, we just did a, it's it's not public yet, totally, but we've been doing this survey of, um, and um, we're in the design and. Um, printing stage of this report. And basically what we're seeing is in terms of looking at why people are becoming homeless in the first place, um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, when you're so poor and then you have something happen like a catastrophic health issue or job loss, you don't have that accumulated wealth to fall back on and then you lose your housing. In the past, before 
things were so crazy with the real estate market, um, for communities, a lot of times the landlords would let people slide. That was just like a part of doing business because you, you know, you fall a couple months and then you, you know, and then people make it up or whatever. Now, like as soon as you're late on rent, they're like sending eviction notices, right? So that's, um, that's a huge thing that's changed. Um, for a lot of people, um, you know, in poor communities in San Francisco, probably not any different from other places, but a lot of people live together with other people and they are not, they don't have formal tenant rights. And, um, this happens in public housing. This happens in, um, uh, this happens in regular market rate housing. Um, you know, all of these shifts. So in public housing, you had a shift to privatized public housing and now it's in the, you know, private nonprofits that, um, the rules are a lot stricter. There's a lot more. There was recently a case of a very highly publicized case about a, a woman getting uh, evicted from um, Valencia Gardens because of her um, her um, uh, kid's dad was um, also serving as her caregiver while she was going through cancer treatment. And then the new management company there evicted her, uh, which is f- gross. Um, but uh, but anyway, so there's there's these shifts that are happening um, and they're also happening in the private market in the same way where um, there's a lot more scrutiny over um, over households um, by the landlords, a lot more motivation to get people out so they can jack up those rents. You know, all of this is kind of adding into this this pot of misery that, that folks are facing out on the streets. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this. That was Jennifer Friedenbach, director of the Coalition on Homelessness. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. 